turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. Jesus Christ, lunatic, liar, or Lord. Jesus has just appointed his 12 disciples. And we know that the crowds are following him. We know that Jesus has many disciples. He has perhaps hundreds and hundreds among the throngs of people who would say, I'm a disciple, I am a follower of Jesus. But these 12 are unique. These are his close cadre of, of disciples. These are men who will stick with him through the hard teaching and as the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, up the ante and make the cost of being a disciple higher. And up until now, Jesus has had a very successful, very powerful public ministry. He began preaching the gospel. He began preaching the kingdom of God. And his teaching has taken people by storm. His teaching and preaching has absolutely and utterly amazed people. What was so amazing about his teaching It was that his teaching was unlike anything the people had heard before. He didn't teach like other rabbis. His teaching was pure. His teaching was perfect. His teaching was utterly profound. And think about it. Luke 2.47 shows us that even as a young boy at the age of 12, that that the teachers of the law, those whose whose nine-to-five job, 40-hour-a-week job was to study and to know the Scriptures, even those men were amazed and astounded at Jesus' grasp of the law and of the questions that he asked them. That was at the age of 12. It would make sense that Jesus knew Scripture better than anybody else because he's God. But furthermore, he didn't base his authority or his interpretation of the law and of the Scriptures on rabbis and scholars and learned men who had come before him as contemporary rabbis would do. The, the, the norm, the scholastic norm was for a rabbi, uh, as he's interpreting and as he's teaching the law, he would have to uh, quote an appeal to rabbi such and such who himself had in his life appealed or quoted rabbi this and that. And he That would be the norm. It would be a rather extensive, extensive process to teach. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did not appeal to any other teachers of the law. He spoke with his own authority. He says, uh, as you can see in the teaching on the mount, you have heard it said, and he would quote the law, but I say to you. And that didn't, that wasn't missed by the peoples. That Matthew 7 concludes by saying they were amazed and astounded because he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes, not like the Pharisees. And we've already seen this in Mark. We have seen him teach true t- true doctrine on fasting and contradict and correct the the scribes and the Pharisees teaching on fasting in Mark 
2, 18 to 32. And not once, but twice he has corrected the scribes teaching on the Sabbath, the pinnacle of Judaistic law, the most important commandment you could observe. Jesus comes along and says, you guys have it altogether wrong. His challenge to the established authorities, it was new, it was unheard of, it was unprecedented, it was exciting. You could just imagine every time Jesus spoke, if he had a mic, he would drop it. It was amazing. Not only was his teaching amazing, but he had miracles that accompanied his teaching. He healed not just a few people, not just the people that could could convince people that he had healed them. He healed anybody, everybody. He healed all. He healed completely. He healed perfectly. He healed instantly. These weren't cheap parlor tricks. These weren't sleight of hand healings. Jesus didn't heal sore joints, headaches, sore backs. He restored sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. He gave hearing to the deaf. Those who had not walked their entire life, think about it, he made, by the power of his word, he made muscle sinew grow. He cast out demons. He, he took those who were clearly, beyond doubt, clearly out of their mind, clearly afflicted by something supernatural, and he put them in their right state of mind by speaking a word and casting the demons out. John, the apostle, tells us at the conclusion of his book that Jesus did many, many more things than Scripture records. So many more, so many more things that if everything were written down, the, the, the Library of Congress couldn't even contain the records. I mean, he doesn't say that, but I'm paraphrasing. Jesus was a walking wonder worker. And Mark writes in 128 that his fame spread like a viral Facebook video. It spread through all Galilee. So much so that in 133, Mark writes that the entire town gathered at Peter's door to hear him teaching, to be healed or to have a loved one Healed. He healed so many that the people followed him wherever they went. And they followed him to such an extent that they, would, that they would go without even thinking about food or shelter. They would follow him into the wilderness on the account that Jesus fed 5,000. Uh, shortly later it said he fed 4,000. Both incidents, the, the gospel writer Matthew says there were 5,000 Men besides women and children. Later, there were 4,000 men besides women and children. Conservative estimates suggest 20 to 25,000 people are following this rabbi into the wilderness, not thinking, what am I going to have for dinner? Where am am I going to sleep? I mean, imagine 
standing in the middle of Safeco Field and half, like half of every seat, Jesus standing in the middle, half of every seat, around 20, 25,000 people in front of him. Massive crowds. And if you're open to Mark 3, just look up at verse 7. They came from Galilee. That's northern Israel. They came from Judea. That's southern Israel. They came from Jerusalem, the capital. They came from Idumea. That's even south of Judea. They, be, they came from beyond the Jordan. That's to the, to the east. They came from Tyre and Sidon. That's, that's the area of the Philistines on the far west. They came from everywhere. People are coming out of the woodworks to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. And what Mark is doing is, is he's leading us to the great question. In 827, where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? That is the great question concerning Jesus Christ. Now, Mark has already told us who he is. He's already told us who Jesus is. One Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's going to conclude his book with the confession of a Roman centurion. Surely this was the Son of God. That is what Mark wants to impress upon his readers. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the divine Lord. And what we see here in our text today, verses 20 to 30, are two views contrary to to the truth of Je- about who Jesus is. Two views contrary, two wrong views as to who is Jesus Christ. You'll see in verses 20 and 21 that there were some who thought Jesus was not divine Lord, but a deranged and delusional lunatic. And then you'll see in verse 22 and 30 through 30 that there are others who said that he is a demonic liar. So let's read the text. Mark 3:20 to 30. And he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. 
but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now let's, let's consider the first errant view, the first wrong view of who Jesus is, and that is the assumption of his family that he was a lunatic. Verses 20 to 21. Verse 20 starts, And he came home, and the crowd gather again. What's the scene? He came home. Literally, he came to a house. Which house? This is probably the house uh, in chapter that we were introduced to in chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 1, verse 29, identifies this as Peter and Andrew's house. Now, think about it. What occupation did, was Peter? What, what, did, what did he do? Did he work for a big, uh, uh, a big industry firm? A big tech firm? He was a fisherman. Did, last I checked, fishermen didn't make a whole lot of money. So he probably has a pretty modest, average house. And his house has been turned into an amphitheater. His roof has been demolished so that a lame man could be lowered to where Jesus was. People are swarming. They are smothering him. They are suffocating Jesus and his disciples, especially the one who owns the house. To what extent were they swarming him? Mark writes that to the extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. Massive hordes of people following Jesus everywhere he went. No quarter, no respite, no minute, no minute's break, no rest. And the more Jesus teaches and preaches and shows mercy and compassion to them as shepherd without a sheep, the crowd only grows and grows. Now, it was normal for rabbis to have a, a, a band of followers who would go with them and hear them teach as they went about the countryside. That was normal, but not twenty to 25,000 people. Unprecedented numbers. And so news of this reaches Jesus' family, literally those of his, usually referred to one's family. And they decide, this situation is getting out of control. We need to act. What, what do they decide to do? They decide to take custody, literally to seize, to capture Jesus. Of the 15 times Mark uses this verb, eight times it's used of Jesus, of people taking him by violence, by sneakery. Why do they do this? Verse 21 concludes, For they were saying, He has lost his senses. He is outside of himself. He is beside himself. He is cuckoo. He's mad. He is two tacos short of a combo plate. Whatever analogy you want to use, Jesus, Jesus' own family sees what he's doing and they think he is insane. He doesn't, he is not in control anymore. This is Bigger than him now. Why would he think, why would his own family think he's crazy? I mean, what, did Mary think he was crazy? 
I don't think she did. She knew who he was. The angel in the other Gospels told her he would be the son of the Most High. She knew Joseph wasn't his father. And her own Magnificat in Luke 2 expresses her faith. But John 7, 5 makes it very clear. His brothers were not believing in him. So just to, just to get this out of the way, we have to ask, why didn't Mary rebuke and correct Jesus' brothers and sisters and any other family members who were lacking faith? And I just, I just have to, in, in her defense, I have to ask, how would you do it? James, Jude, respect your brother. He's God. He's the eternal God incarnate in the flesh. You should, you should respect him. I, I don't know how that would go down. But she, she knew he was God. Furthermore, the Gospels tell us that he didn't do miracles in Nazareth. He did not do miracles when he was a young boy. He did not zap his homework done. He, he didn't walk into his father, into Joseph's carpentry shop and go, chair, table, recliner. He could have, but he didn't. John 2.11 tells us that when he was an adult, the miracle that he did in Cana at the wedding, turning water into wine, that was the first of his signs. So Jesus didn't go around doing what he's doing here when he was a young boy growing up. So that's one reason why his family could conclude he's, he's nuts. They have not seen the miracles. Furthermore, William Barclay adds three more reasons. He, he says, by his actions, Jesus made it clear that the three laws by which men tend to organize their lives meant absolutely nothing to Jesus. Those three laws, security, safety, and what society thinks. As far as security is concerned, think about this. Jesus gave up a stable job. He, he was a carpenter like Joseph, and he left home. He left the comfort of home. He left the comfort of having a bed and a roof and a, of a job that had money coming in each week. He gave that up to go be an itinerant, wandering preacher. He, he gave up a home so that he could say, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He gave up security. He also gave up safety. Jesus was clearly, clearly on a collision course with the established religious authorities. He has done absolutely nothing to avoid this collision with the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. And if anything, it seems like he's actually encouraging it. It seems like he's actually seeking them out, egging them on, showing their hypocrisy. Now, these were men who had the means to make life difficult for anybody who got in the way and downright dangerous for anyone who dared oppose them. And here comes Jesus openly challenging them, undermining their authority, exposing their hypocrisy. Jesus was poking the bear. Not accidentally. It would appear he was doing it quite intentionally. And when you poke the bear, the bear growls back. 
The third law that he seemed indifferent to was the law of society. He wasn't pressured. He wasn't influenced. He wasn't pushed or molded or shaped by what society thought. Rather, he was effectively making his own small society. And Barclay said his own small society was rather odd. I mean, think about it. His closest disciples, the men that he is bringing unto himself and calling and investing in, they are Galilean, working-class, smelly fishermen. There's a tax collector among their ranks. There was a, a patriotic fanatic, a zealot among their ranks. These are not individuals that an ambitious that an occupationally ambitious man would want to associate with. These are not influential, schooled, trained, qualified, dignified men. These are not men who would be on the who's who list. These were nobodies. These were not men that you enlist to, to make and push a movement. There was perhaps one that had some external display of promise. He, uh, all the, uh, Eleven of them were Galilean from the north, so they weren't true Jews. They were, they were half, you know, three-quarter Jews. Not better than Samaritans, but they're not Judean Jews. Eleven of them were from Galilee. One was from Judea. Judas Iscariot. And some have suggested that he might have had a very promising career before joining Jesus. He might have been a banker. He might have been a financier. Because John tells us that he was the one entrusted with the money box. He had the Jesus ministry purse. But this whole band are Jesus' closest disciples. And, and moreover, beyond, beyond that twelve, the throngs of people are suffocating and smothering Jesus wherever he go. No sensible man would do the things that Jesus has done. No sensible man in control of himself, in his right state of mind, would claim to be the Messiah, the son of David, the promised king of Israel, the son of God. So yes, his family thought he was a loon. Mark provides us a second wrong view of Jesus. In addition to being a deranged lunatic, some thought, some said and accused him of being a demonic liar. A liar. A liar Powered, sent, commissioned by Satan. This was the accusation of Jesus' foes. And we see the totality of this interaction, verses 22 to 30. So Jesus' family, they're not the only ones seeking to seize, seeking to take Jesus. Now, they wanted to take him to hopefully quietly and safely put him away. To, they were trying to rescue him from himself, as it were. But just look up at Mark 3, 6. Mark has already told us what 
what the what the Pharisees and the scribes what their intent is. They have gone they have gone out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him. Now the Pharisees being the ultra conservatives, they are allying themselves with the Herodians who were the compromisers. They, these were Jews who had thrown in their lot with Herod, the non-Jewish king. So this isn't going to be the last time that politically opposed enemies, men who would typically never work together, they will unite in their hatred of Jesus. And what do they conspire together as to how, verse verse 6, how they might destroy him? So his family wants to capture him to save him from himself. These folks want to destroy him. These are the scribes. They, they, they are the underlings of the Pharisees. They're really of the same lot, the same camp. The, they would have been the lawyers, the keepers, and interpreters of the law. They're of the same camp of the Pharisees. They're just... They're the they're the diet version of the Pharisee. They're the light version, you know, half the calories, but still made from the same stuff, just watered down, still bad folks. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out demons by the rulers of the demons. What were they saying? Jesus is satanic. All that Jesus is doing, all the miracle he's doing, he's not doing it by God. He's doing it by Satan. And they are going out proclaiming a message contrary, opposed, against, refuting the true gospel. The gospel which Jesus was preaching and his disciples were were commissioned to teach that said Jesus has come from God. Jesus did his miracles by the power of God. He is the son of God. He came to undo the works of the devil. He came to free people, the people of God, from the devil. They are refuting that gospel. And they are they're providing rather, a, a, I, I suppose you could say, the first counterfeit gospel is that Jesus is not of God, he is of the devil. His works and his miracles are not empowered by God. They are satanic and demonic. And if he's loosing people, if it appears that he is loosing people from the grips of one demon, it's only so that he can put them into the bondage of a stronger, more heinous demon. What are they saying? Jesus is only pretending to be an angel of light. His mercy is a fraud. It's a lie. So don't believe him. Have nothing to do with him. That's what they're saying. Now notice, they, the scribes, the Pharisees, they cannot refute, they cannot explain away the miracles themselves. They cannot deny Jesus' miracles. Their only recourse is to lie about them. Their only recourse is to employ a schmear campaign. Jesus' works, they're satanic. He is possessed by Beelzebul. 
Beelzebul was a Jewish term of derision. It was a, a Jewish, um, it was an insulting what, name that they gave to Satan. It's actually quite humorous what they did here. They took the Philistine name of Baal, Beelzebub, Baal, the, the, the king or the prince or lord that dwells, the lord that dwells, the 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 highest god there was in the pagan religion. And like schoolyard children, they just they, they make one little little alteration, one little modification to the pronunciation of his name, and they change his name from Lord uh, Baal the Lord that dwells to Baal the Lord of the flies. And the image was was the flies that are flying over a pile of dung. So it was an insult. He's not the Lord that dwells and reigns. He is the Lord of the... And the name stuck. The name stuck. So they are saying that he is possessed by Satan. And that the, 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 the claim that he is possessed, that he is energized, he has been commissioned, he is of Satan, is, is also affirmed by the second lie that they say. They say that he casts out demons by who? The ruler of the demons. That is Satan. Now notice that Mark, Mark tells us that they were they, they come down from Jerusalem. They were saying. We've looked at this before. This is, this is a way that a writer could tell you this was an ongoing action. It was repeated. It was a pattern. They did it time and time and time again. This wasn't just a one-time occurrence. So the idea is that as they are, as they are going out, perhaps they're following Jesus' circuit. And they're spreading this counterfeit gospel. They are refuting the gospel that Jesus has preached, saying, do not believe him. He is not of God. He is of Satan. And they were saying it over and over and over. So on this one instance where they find him at Peter's house, he calls them. He he responds to them. He calls them over. Guys, come here. Come here. Verse 23, and he called them to himself, and he began speaking to them in parables. Now, this is, this is one of Jesus' favorite ways to teach. He used parables. What's a parable? Literally means to lay alongside, and the idea is you, if you want to teach a profound truth, you take an easy truth, you, you take a truth that is easy to grasp, you lay it alongside the profound, difficult truth, and then you let the hearer connect the dots. Because the, the simple truth parallels, it correlates to the profound truth. So you, you take a difficult truth, you line it up next to an easy-to-grasp truth. You, you require, uh, if you want to teach something, a principle or something about the kingdom of God that is difficult to understand, that is obscure, that is of a spiritual nature... You take something that is easily seen, easily understood, something of earth, something that is pertinent, related to your own experiences. You slap that alongside. And the thing that is easily seen then interprets and makes clear the thing that is profound. 
You want to teach something about the kingdom of heaven? You want to teach something about the kingdom of God? You use as an illustration something about a natural kingdom. Jesus did that all the time. So what is the easy-to-grasp, easily-seen earthly truth that he employs here in, their, in his parable to the scribes? Well, he, he begins by asking a rhetorical question. And the, 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 the truth is kingdoms that fight against each other don't last very long. That's, that's the easily understood truth. And he, he asks this rhetorically at the bottom of verse 23. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Now, we have to suppress, we have to resist our American sense of individualism, of rugged, determined individualism, and see that there is an axiomatic truth. There is a generalized principle that divided nations, divided armies, divided peoples, divided interests do not endure. Divided peoples and nations do not survive. You want to take down a massive imposing force or army or nation, divide their interests, divide their loyalties, incite infighting, incite rivalries, divide and conquer. And it helps if you can get them to conquer themselves for you. So Jesus' point, even though Satan is chaotic. Even though Satan is disorderly, even he knows not to uh, uh, delegate his, or send or, or um, assign his troops to fight against one another. Even Satan knows not to do that. And the fact that Jesus' ministry exposed the demons. He's in Capernaum right now. Back in, in chapter 123, there was a man immediately in the synagogue, possessed by a demon. Jesus is exposing them. They are concealed, hidden. They are effectively doing what they were commissioned to do. Jesus comes along, exposes them, prevents them from doing what they were sent to do. He confronts them. He excised exercised an authority that was over them and against them. He casts them out. He freed and liberated those who were oppressed, those who were in bondage to these demons. All of that proved Jesus is not working for Satan. He was fighting against Satan, and he was winning. As the gospel went out, Jesus was gaining ground from the demons. And he uses one more parable to drive this home. Verse 27. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. So, spiritual, uh, 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 easy to grasp image 
parallel to spiritual truth. He says there's a strong man. Who's the strong man? Who? Satan. What's his house? The world. The earth. Remember, uh, Paul, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the God of this world. He is the, the ruler of the, of, the, of the power of the air. Jesus likens the earth. I mean, technically God owns it because he made it, but for sake of illustration, the house is the place where he has, for the time being, power. Remember, when, when, when Satan uh, uh, goes before God in Job 1, where did he come from? Roaming to and fro on the earth. So his house is the, is the world, the earth. What is his property? What is being plundered? This is those in bondage to demons and everybody in bondage to sin. One last question. Who is the plunderer? Who is the one that has come into Satan's house and is taking bit by bit, piece by piece, the possessions and the goods of Satan? Jesus. Jesus is the plunderer. Jesus is the stronger man who has bound the strong man. And his miracles testify to this. And there was no shortage of witnesses who could testify. Jesus freed me from the demon. I was the one out of my mind. I was the one in the graveyard I was the one who couldn't be bound by men or by chains. I was the one cutting myself trying to get it out. And he healed me and put me in my right mind. There were no shortage of people who could say that. There were no shortage of people who could say, he freed my child. He freed my friend. And he is here to testify of it. There was no shortage of eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles. And perhaps that man that he cast the demon out from uh, in chapter 1, verse 23, the man in the synagogue, perhaps he was there in this very moment. Now Jesus touches on something very important very sobering, and that's the unforgivable sin. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, this is, a, this is a unique phrase to Jesus. No one else in the New Testament says it. I think this is his, this is his own way of saying, listen up. This is true, and this is important. Don't let this escape you. He says, All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, uh, you can provide they will be forgiven. that's, That's implied. But he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, 
We understand the first part, right? We understand that all sins shall be forgiven. We understand that the gospel calls us to repent of our sins, to believe in Jesus Christ for the remission, for the the putting away of our sins. We understand that God has put forth and accepted Jesus Christ as the atoning, reconciling, redeeming, propitiating, justifying sacrifice for sins. Those are big words, but we've covered those. I hope you know what they mean. Those who benefit from the cross work of Jesus Christ, for them, God's wrath is fully and finally and completely satisfied. Not one sin is missed by the blood of Calvary. We get that. And I am convinced that heaven, we will find heaven to be occupied by those who were formerly liars and thieves and idolaters and all kinds of sexual immorals, murderers, conspirators, horrible things that they had done formerly, that had they not been covered by the blood of Christ, if they continued to be outside of Christ, they would all be likewise guilty and accountable for their sins. But because they are in Christ, they are what? Forgiven. We get that first part. All sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men. All blasphemies, all evil things said and asserted will be forgiven. We get that. But Jesus says there's an exception. There is one sin that will not be forgiven. And that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now what is, what is it to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? I, I think this is important to know because the consequences of committing it seem pretty dire, don't you think? Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never, that's, a, that's extreme, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. There aren't, last time I checked, there aren't many sins that are described, that, that are given that kind of a qualification. There's been so much confusion about what this is. But first, to, to help us understand what this means, I want you to consider who is it that Jesus is giving this warning to. That, that will help us understand what this sin is. Who is Jesus warning? Is he warning his family who thinks he's crazy? No. Is he warning the people who will, you know, of whom many will ultimately leave him and show that they have a shallow faith? Is he is he warning them? No. He is warning the scribes. And by extension, I would also throw in the Pharisees. He is warning the religious. He is warning those who should know better. Because despite the evidence that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, Jesus is who the gospel says he is. He is the Son of God. Despite that evidence, despite the miracles, despite his powers, despite the unlimited 
amount of eyewitness testimony that was available. And despite the scriptures that they had, remember the scribes and the Pharisees, their job was to study and interpret the scriptures. Despite the very scriptures they had, they fulfilled what John said in 540. You, and he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. You have the scriptures. And you study them, you read them, you pour all over them because you think that by having that and doing that, you think you have eternal life, but you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have eternal life. That is the sin that the scribes and the Pharisees committed. It is an unwillingness to come to Christ and to believe in him. And it is manifested, their sin is manifested in a willingness to defiantly reject Jesus and say, he's not from God. He's not from God, he is of Satan. He is not divine, he is demonic. And we know Jesus' warning is pointed at them because look at verse 30. Why is he saying this? Why is he giving this warning? Verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Who was saying that? The scribes. Those who should have known better. Those who were without excuse. Three times Mark has already shown us that Jesus is the Son of God. And that he did what he did by the power of God and by the power of the Spirit of God. One eight, Jesus, John the Baptist said, he, he speaking to, about Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One ten, the Spirit was descending upon Jesus like a dove. One twelve, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Everything that Jesus did, Jesus did in and through the Spirit. Everything he did and said was, was of God and empowered and approved by God. That's why God the Father could say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God wouldn't say that about someone possessed by a demon. That Jesus did miracles by God and through God was plainly claimed and it was plainly made evident by the fact that Jesus is taking ground bit by bit, inch by inch from Satan. And even still, even still the scribes double down in hardened unbelief. And they tell bold-faced lies about him over and over and over everywhere they went. They had to get out there and refute and undermine that God, the true gospel with a, with a gospel of their own. That's the unforgivable sin. Sheer, utter hardness of heart that is so hard that in an effort and a desire to justify its unbelief, it will attribute the work of God to the work of the demonic. So the unforgivable sin, it's not committing the same sin for the thousandth, thousandth time. It is not 
to deny the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. It's the hardness of heart that will never, ever, ever come to repentance and faith. It is a ground, it is a heart whose service is concrete hard that the seed of the gospel will not penetrate it. It is a hardness of heart that despite full revelation, despite all the evidence that God could provide, would provide, it's a heart that still doubles down in unbelief and rejects Jesus Christ. But Mark has given us the three views of Jesus. He's, as thought by his family, he's a delusional lunatic. As accused by the Pharisees and the scribes, he is a demonic liar to be avoided and shunned. Or, as Mark has told us at the very beginning, in one one, he is the divine Lord. He is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, then he has, in fact, come to destroy the works of the devil. He has triumphed over sin. As his own illustration shows, he is the stronger man who has successfully bound the one who first bound us. He has bound the one who bound me and you and has led us to freedom through his gospel. If he is indeed the Son of God who has done these things, He deserves rightly to be loved and adored and worshipped and obeyed and trusted. He is who the gospel says he is. Amen. Lord, thank you for saving us from sin, death, and the devil. Strong and powerful is he who is in the world, but you are stronger than he. Thank you for being our Savior, our Lord. Thank you for redeeming us, for making us your own. Teach us, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Make us better disciples. Make us better hearers of the word. Help us to see the beauty of your person as it is shown to us in the Gospels. Help us to see things each week as we go through the Gospels. Help us to see new, th- new things that make us fall even more in love with who you are and what you've done for our sake. What a wonderful privilege it is to learn about you and to be reminded of who you are. Amen.